take a deep breath Take the higher road That's what they always say As if they know the way They won't take it from me But don't ever doubt yourself Cause life ain't just a dream You make your own So kick and scream The people will like With a never ending force You never had the chance So what you waiting for The day has come my friend Cause this is war Welcome to Nurses Out Loud. I'm your host, Nurse April, and today we are going to talk about Lindsay Clancy, who was arraigned on Tuesday from her hospital bed. She's been accused of murdering her three children, and I really want to dig into this case. It's it's fairly new. This just happened a few weeks ago. It's tragic. It's very painful to hear the details of this story, and we are going to go into the details just as a heads up just because I want us to really have a good conversation and really dig into some of the implications this has on our current mode of treatment when it comes to postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis. So if you don't know already, Lindsay Clancy um, is a labor and delivery nurse out of Boston, and she had three young children. Her youngest was an infant, and she had been struggling with postpartum depression. We'll get into the details a little more, but just as a quick reminder, our show airs Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time with an encore at 11 p.m. And then our shows will go to podcast about a day or two after they air. So if you miss any of our shows, you can go to your favorite podcast app and look up Nurses Out Loud and listen to the shows again. And if you missed anything or if you want to share anything that you'd like us to discuss, or if you have any comments or questions or concerns, you can send us an email. You can just go to the America out loud forward slash nurses And you can send an email to any of the nurses. Our hope is that you will engage with us and then we can start to really talk about things that matter to you guys. So I want to get into this story, and there's a lot of this that I want to unpack. But first, I'm going to start by playing you some of the prosecutor's testimony. I was originally going to read it to you, but I think it's better that you hear it directly from her. So here you go. Thank you, Your Honor. The Commonwealth is requesting that the defendant be held without bail based on the facts of the case the strength of the Commonwealth case and the potential penalty. On Friday, January 27, 2023, using an erasable whiteboard because she was still temporarily intubated, one of the first questions that Lindsay Clancy asked was, do I need an attorney? She knew that she had murdered her children and she had the clarity, focus, and mental acumen to focus on protecting her own rights and interests. The following is a summary of the events that led to the murders of Cora Clancy, Dawson Clancy, and Callan Clancy. On the morning of Tuesday, January 24th, 2023, the defendant took her five-year-old daughter, Cora, to the pediatrician for an appointment. She interacted with a receptionist, nursing staff, and a doctor. There were apparently no issues with the defendant's demeanor or behavior 
as she completed the appointment and was allowed to leave with Cor without any issues or concern. When she returned home, she went outside with Cor and a three-year-old son, Dawson, to play in the snow. They built a snowman. The defendant sent photos to her mother and to the defendant, straight back to her husband. She texted with them. Nothing in the text was out of the ordinary or any sign of any distress or trouble. Back inside later that day at 4.02 p.m., the defendant searched on her phone, Kids Miralax. She then searched at Takeout 3V near her cell phone at 4.13 p.m. Immediately after doing that, she used Apple Maps on her phone to determine how long it would take someone to drive from her home in Duxbury to 3V Restaurant in Plymouth. So she would know how long someone would be gone if they ran that errand. She next went on the CVS website at 4.47 p.m. and then called CVS on Summer Street in Kingston. She spoke to the manager of CVS and asked if they had the kids' Marilac. The manager told her no, but they had other similar medications. According to the manager of CVS, her voice did not sound slurred or impaired in any way. She had no trouble understanding the defendant, and it was a perfectly normal conversation. At 4.53 p.m., the defendant texted her husband, who was working in his home office in their basement. He texted, any chance you want to do takeout from 3V? I didn't cook anything. It's been a long day. This was an unusual request, as when the family ordered takeout, they'd usually go somewhere closer to home. But it was a place that they had been in the past. Patrick Clancy texted back yes, and then the defendant asked him to check the menu. At 5.06 p.m., the, the, the husband texted the defendant um, asking uh, what she was going to get. She responded, a Mediterranean Power Bowl. She spelled it correctly, and it was something that was on the menu. He then told her that he wanted the scallop and pork belly risotto. At 5 to 10 p.m., the defendant called 3V Restaurant to place the order. She got the order correct. She gave the correct name for pickup, Patrick. The hostess who took the call said there was nothing out of the ordinary about this call. She was able to understand the defendant, that um, her voice was not slurred or impaired in any way. At 5.15 p.m., Patrick Clancy headed out the door to run these errands at the defendant's request. As he left, she texted him Pedialyx liquid stool softener. Surveillance footage shows Mr. Clancy at CVS on Summer Street in Kingston at 5.32 p.m. He goes to the medication aisle, the children's medication aisle. Phone records show that he called the defendant at 5.33 p.m. and she did not answer the phone. She then called him back at 5.34 p.m. and the call lasted 14 seconds. He's there at the store unsure of which medication to get and she tells him exactly what she wants. He had no issues communicating with her. It was a completely normal call, although he did mention that she seemed like she was in the middle of something. He is on surveillance footage during this time, exiting that aisle and appeared to be using his phone. He then heads to the register, makes his purchase, and leaves the store at 5.37 p.m. He's next seen on footage at 3V Restaurant at 5.54 p.m. He picks up the food and he's out of there within a minute. When he arrives home, the first thing he noticed was the silence. He did not see or hear the defendant or the children. He actually called her cell phone at 6.09 p.m. looking for them, and she did not answer. He went to their bedroom on the second floor, and the door was locked. He was able to open it, and when he looked inside, he saw blood on the floor in front of a full-length mirror and the window open. 
He immediately runs downstairs and into the backyard where he finds the defendant laying on the ground. She appeared to have cuts on her wrists and neck, but he stated to 911 that those wounds were no longer bleeding. She was conscious. He called 911. During this time, he asked the defendant, what did you do? She responded to him, I tried to kill myself and jumped out the window. During the 911 call, Patrick can be heard asking the defendant, where are the kids? He later told police that she replied, in the basement. But immediately after this happened, she knew what she had done and she knew where the kids were. When EMS arrived, he asked them to stay with her so he could go find his kids. The 911 call kept going. Patrick can be heard on the 911 call entering the home and heading to the basement. At one point, he calls out, guys. He can then be heard screaming in agony and shock as he found his children. His screams seem to get louder and more agonized as the time passes. Cora and Callan were on the floor in the den area of the finished basement, which is the left when you walk down the stairs. While Dawson was alone on the floor in his father's home office, which is to the right when you go down the stairs. Each child still had the exercise band that was used to strangle them tied around their necks when their father found them. Dawson and Callan were face down on the floor. Cora was on her side with her torso tor tor turned towards the floor. He removed the band and begged them to breathe. He continued to scream uncontrollably and screamed for officers to come to the basement. The dispatchers are hearing this and they send help down to the basement. And when they encounter Patrick, he yells out, she killed the kids. The police rushed the children to ambulances that brought them to the hospital. And unfortunately, Cora and Dawson were declared dead at the hospital. Callan was med flighted to Boston Children's Hospital. Medical staff was able to restart his pulse, but not his brain activity. He was placed on life support for several days before passing away. The defendant was transported to South Shore Hospital and then to a Boston area hospital where she remains. She sustained several broken bones in her back and her rib cage. The police were able to find several notebooks in the defendant's home pursuant to a search warrant and also notes on her phone that were similar to journal entries. In the months, weeks, and days preceding January 24th, 2023, the defendant meticulously detailed her daily activities, her children's lives, her mental state, and her medication use. Her writing was clear, precise, and articulate. She never indicated that she was hallucinating, delusional, or had disordered thoughts or speech. In all of her writing, she appears to know who she is, where she is, the date, and with whom she's interacted. She wrote a note on her phone the day before killing the children, stating that she had, quote, a touch of postpartum anxiety, end quote, around returning to work. She wrote that her psychiatrist had prescribed medication to help her. The defendant was initially diagnosed, according to her husband, with generalized anxiety disorder. He was then evaluated at the Women and Infant Center for Women's Behavioral Health in Providence, Rhode Island, on December 20th, 2022. There, after an evaluation, she was told in the presence of her husband that by psychiatrists that she did not have postpartum depression and that she had no symptoms of postpartum depression. She wrote in her journal that at times she had suicidal ideation in December of 2022, and she also told her husband that she had suicidal thoughts and on one occasion had thoughts of harming her children. 
but she did not write or voice those thoughts after a stay at McLean Hospital. When she had those thoughts, she consulted with a psychiatrist and with her husband, and then she committed herself to McLean Hospital on January 1st, 2023. She was discharged by the hospital on January 5th, 2023. And the hospital did not file any paperwork at that time, attempting to have her committed as a danger to herself or others. She also kept meticulous and detailed daily medication logs in a diary that she wrote. She detailed that she had difficulties with each of the medications that were prescribed to her. And when she had issues with those medications, she detailed how her doctor had her stop that medication or wean off of it and then try something else. They were trying different medications to see what would work for her, what would benefit her. According to her husband, she was never on more than four to five medications at one time. And at the time of the murder, she was taking only three medications and said to the police that she always took the medications as prescribed. After her stay at McLean, the defendant appeared to be getting better, according to her husband. She slept well, interacted with friends and family. She went out with her kids and husband to places like the Kingsbury Club in Duxbury, the Charlie Horse Restaurant, the Museum of Science in Boston, the Cape Cotter down the Cape, interacting with her family and the public without any apparent difficulties. She even stayed alone with her children on several occasions without any issues in January of 2023. Her husband asked her in mid-January, are you still having suicidal thoughts? And she said, no. The defendant's parents visited the family the weekend of January 21st, 2023. They interacted with the defendant in person. The defendant was able to run errands while her mom watched the children. She texted back and forth with her mother, and there was nothing out of the ordinary about these text messages. In fact, the defendant texted her mother on January 22nd, 2023, to ask how her, home, her ride home went. During this conversation, the defendant's mother wrote, quote, enjoyed seeing everyone this weekend. Nice to see you doing better, end quote. On the night of the killings, Patrick Clancy was interviewed by the police at Beth Israel Deaconess Plymouth Hospital, he told the police that the defendant was having one of her best days. She was smiling and happy, and there was no indication that she was going to harm the kid. No one, no one at all, described her as acting like a zombie in the days leading up to the murder or on the day of the murders themselves. On February 5th, 2023, this past Sunday at 1.35 p.m., while sitting with Dr. Paul Zeidel, the psychologist hired by defense counsel to evaluate her mental state, the defendant used Dr. Zizel's cell phone to call her husband. She left a voicemail stating that she loved him. Yesterday on February 6, 2023 at 10.09 a.m., she again used Dr. Zizel's cell phone to call her husband. This time he answered, and during this call, the defendant stated that after he left the house that night, she killed the kids because she heard a voice and had, quote, a moment of psychosis, end quote. He asked her what voices she heard, and she said she heard a man's voice telling her to kill the kids and kill herself because it was a, her last chance. Patrick Clancy told the police the defendant had never heard voices before. He also told the police the defendant had never used the word psychosis to him before. The first time she used that word psychosis was when she was with the doctor hired by defense counsel and using his cell phone. The defendant actually wrote a note on her phone on October 25th approximately three months before this happened, October 25th, 2022. She wrote, quote, I think I sort of resent my other children because they prevent me from treating Cal like my first baby. And I know that's not fair to them. I know that. I was feeling so depressed last evening when Cora and Dawson came home from school. I know it runs off on them. So we had a pretty rough evening. I want to feel love, 
in connection with all of my kids. She then wrote that she wants to have more kids eventually. The children were killed by ligature strangulation. Ligature strangulation causes the victim to become unconscious anywhere from 10 seconds up to a minute. The more the victim struggles, the longer it takes. After the victim is unconscious, the ligature must be held in place with force, squeezing the neck for up to an additional four to five minutes to cause death. Therefore, she had to strangle each of them to unconsciousness and then make sure the bands were squeezing their little necks for several minutes. She could have changed her mind at any point during that time and removed those bands from their necks, and she did not. The defendant did not take advantage of the situation when her husband left the home that night. She created the situation, and she used Apple Maps to make sure she would have enough time to strangle each child before her husband returned from where she had sent him. The defendant is a danger to herself and others. She planned these murders, gave herself the time and privacy needed to commit the murders, and then she strangled each child in the place where they should have felt the safest, at home with their mom. That was heavy. And I felt like it was really important to go over the details of that case because there were a number of significant points that were raised that I believe need to be evaluated from a different lens. If you go online to postpartumdepression.org, you can actually see a list of symptoms that go over what mental symptoms a woman may present with if she has postpartum depression. So here are the quick list. It says um, emotional symptoms include excessive and uncontrollable crying, persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness, feeling numb or empty, extremes and mood swings, irritability and restlessness, feeling anger and rage, becoming easily frustrated, anxiety and fear, and feeling guilt and shame. If you think back on the story that was recounted to us, There was definitely times where you could tell that she was feeling numb or empty when she talked about how she wanted to have a connection with all of her children, but she was, she was having a hard time with that. She was having issues with irritability and restlessness. She was having anger and rage. She talked about the frustration that she had with her children and how she had had a bad day. And she was having a hard time because she felt like they were getting in the way of her being able to connect and bond with her newborn because she now was mauled. She had to have, you know, her attention split. She there, this other one becoming easily frustrated, anxiety and fear, feeling guilt and shame. I mean, she obviously mentioned feeling, she felt the guilt and shame in her journal entry. Um, And that's just, a list of some of the the emotional symptoms. But if you go down further and you look at the mental symptoms of postpartum depression, you'll see an inability to concentrate, trouble remembering details, difficulty making decisions, doubting her ability to care for her baby, thinking things are too overwhelming to handle, thinking she has failed or is inadequate, feelings of worthlessness, all of which I believe were pointed out during the prosecutor's statement. When you think about it, I mean, she she spent a lot of time talking about her meticulous note-taking and journaling. Well, from my own personal experience, and I recounted this in, in my story last week when I talked about my, my 
birth story with my youngest son, David. And I talked about how when he was born and he had that rare malformation, I kept meticulous notes. I found myself detailing every moment of the day. Every time we were in the hospital, I found myself just writing notes. Who came in the room at what time? You know, um, I was charting how many times they stuck him with a needle. I documented how many times my son was stuck with needles and where in my journal because I felt like it was the only way to have control over of the situation. And obviously I was struggling in that time with a lot of depression myself, postpartum depression, anxiety, fear, all of the things that would weigh heavy on a new mom who, you know, is struggling not only with hormonal imbalance, but also, you know, very, very um, difficult birth um, and, and an outcome with a child with a disability. And so when the prosecuting attorney was detailing her meticulous note-taking, her point was to say that she was completely self-aware and she didn't have any signs of what she believes are signs of psychosis and that she had clarity of thought and mind. But my argument to that is not so much that it shows clarity of thought and mind, but it shows that you have an inability to remember details. And you want to make sure that you're keeping track of everything. You want to give yourself some, some semblance of control. And if you have an inability to concentrate, you, you have to keep notes or you'll forget. I, I believe that that was showing that she was having doubts about her ability to care for her baby and her children and that she was feeling overwhelmed. And um, she was, she had even mentioned that she had had a bad day that day that she mentioned that she was sad that she wasn't able to focus on her, her newborn baby because she had to um, take care of her other children. And in her saying that it was her admitting that she felt inadequate. She felt worthless. And, and that's my opinion. My first thought when I heard this was something is missing. I know that the prosecuting attorney is leading us in a specific way. She wants us to feel like Lindsay is a monster and that she intentionally murdered her three children because she is just some crazy psychopath. However, that did not sit well with me. I felt like there's more to this story and I cannot let her lead me down that way because one thing that I recalled was this research that came out about the effectiveness or the ineffectiveness of antidepressants. And so knowing that she had been to multiple doctors and they had her on a variety of different antidepressants trying to help her with her uh, postpartum depression triggered something. Now, what's interesting as well is that the prosecutor mentioned the doctor said she did not have postpartum depression or she didn't have any symptoms of postpartum depression. If that's the case, then why was she on so many antidepressants? And 
why would she voluntarily commit herself to a mental hospital if she wasn't struggling with some sort of postpartum depression slash psychosis? I will tell you that people do not voluntarily commit themselves to psychiatric hospitals. I can promise you that. Not unless they actually have a real reason of being there. It is not a very pleasant experience. Most people are trying to avoid going to these psychiatric hospitals. She voluntarily went. So she was obviously trying to protect herself and her children. Now, this, of course, is still all my opinion. I don't know the full details of this case, but just based on what we heard together and a few other details that I came across in my research, I can tell you that there's far more to this story that is has not been really revealed, but will be. And so imagine, imagine the mental prison that she's currently in right now. If you haven't, I will include links to the video as well as to some articles that I want to discuss with you. But in the video, you can actually see her. She's laying in her hospital bed and she's staring at the screen. And she, in her eyes, she does look absent. There seems to be this absence of emotion where you would think hearing the details retold by the prosecutor as a mother you would think that her reaction would be apparent all over her face. Now, one of the things that's also interesting is in this video, she has a mask on. A stupid surgical mask, by the way, that isn't helping anybody. Who knows why it's on there? In some ways, I kind of wonder. My daughter actually just the other day was saying that she came across an article that said that they that they find that people who are uncomfortable with their looks tend to be more apt to wearing masks frequently. And I, that was always one of my theories. Like, do people wear masks just because they want to cover their face because they're uncomfortable or they're feeling insecure and it's like a security blanket? Because we know that masks don't work. And so here she is laying in her hospital bed in her room. And I mean, of course, yes, there's probably a sitter in the room with her 24 hours a day because she's on suicide watch. And whomever else, like the officer might be in the room with her and whoever else is in the room. Yeah. But why does she have a mask on in her own room? And my thought was maybe it's on there to help um, hide her expressions. Maybe that was on purpose. I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, looking in her eyes, they do look very empty. And that says to me that she's over overly medicated. When you've dealt with someone who is in the hospital, and sometimes when people have gone through really severe tragedies, we will give them medications to help them um, to cope. And those medications really make you feel numb. And if anyone has ever been on antidepressants, then you would know how it feels to have this absence of feeling. You truly can feel like this state of numbness. And I've been on antidepressants in the past when I was young. Having my children, I also struggled with uh, postpartum depression. And I tried a multitude of different antidepressants. And the feeling I felt was numbness, was apathy, 
I didn't feel like it cured my depression. It just numbed my feelings, really. And that's really what I see in her eyes. I want to talk a little bit more about the uh, physical symptoms of postpartum depression as listed on this website, and then um, go into the actual psychosis symptoms. So it says changes in appetite, such as eating too much or too little, trouble sleeping, oversleeping, fatigue and loss of energy, muscle aches and pains, headaches, stomach pains. Now, these are all physical symptoms of postpartum depression, but they're also just physical symptoms of you know postpartum, right? So when you're having all these symptoms, it's really hard to tell what's causing them. So I can some, in some ways understand why practitioners might say, oh, you know, this is just typical. This is standard how you would feel after having a baby. Plus this is your third baby. You got a lot going on and really kind of just being or taking her symptoms lightly. I, I don't know how many people are aware of this, but in healthcare, we are very, very reluctant to seek help when it comes to mental illness in a lot of ways, because we know the label that comes along with it, that travels with you. For instance, I know that every time I apply for privileges at a hospital, they ask you about your mental health. They ask you if you have issues with any like psychiatric issues, if you're on any psychiatric prescriptions, if you've had any issues with, um, what is it like bipolar things like that? They ask you these questions. And so I know, and I have heard from physicians in the past, and I have read of polls that they've done of doctors who are always, they're very resistant to seeking help when it comes to psychiatric issues, like depression, anxiety, and things like that, because they're afraid that it's going to go on their record. And they know that it could make it difficult for them to continue practicing, make it difficult to get insurance right? So we really have created a state where we, we say we want to help people with their mental health issues, but then we do the opposite and we penalize people when they have mental health issues. So my concern is that Lindsay, who is a labor and delivery nurse, more than likely was seeing providers who were also friends of hers, we typically choose our doctors or our providers based on, you know, familiarity. We like how they practice. We have a good relationship with them, especially if you're an L&D nurse. You work closely with these doctors and you have a relationship with them. So when you become more friendly with your practitioners, they want the best for you. And I, I believe in some ways they don't want to believe that you could be suffering with some of these very, very dire things like postpartum psychosis, like, oh, you're okay. Everything's going to be fine. They take it a little more lightly. This is my opinion again, but just from my interactions, I think that we often are more dismissive of our colleagues because we just think, oh, it can't be, it can't be that bad. It's funny. I was talking to a colleague just a couple of days ago and she was recounting her story of having her first baby, and she went into preterm labor. So she was about seven months pregnant and it was actually Christmas day. And she went into labor, her water broke. And so she had been already planning on going to the unit. She was working in L and D at the time. So she had been planning on visiting the unit and bringing them food. And so she went up to the unit and was like, Hey, um, I'm in labor and I need to get onto the monitors. And they did not believe her. 
They were like, yeah, whatever, whatever. You're just saying that. She was like, no, really, really. She was like, I came here because I'm in labor. They didn't believe her. They were like, yeah, okay, whatever. Go put yourself on the monitor. Turns out, so she puts herself on the monitor and she's just sitting in there forever. She said, nobody ever came until her husband showed up and they were, her husband shows up and they were like, hey, who are you here to see? And he says, I'm here to see such and such, my wife. And that's when they finally realized, oh my gosh, she was serious. So they run in the room, they, you know, realize like she's preterm labor, her water's broken. She ends up delivering her daughter and, you know, they really kind of blew her off because they were like, you're not really like we, we just have a familiarity with one another and we just have a harder time evaluating and assessing when something really isn't right. And so I I have to say that without having access to her medical records and charts, I do kind of wonder if her diagnosis of not having postpartum depression was accurate. Now, Lindsay had, I want to talk a little bit, like I said, about the postpartum psychosis symptoms and see if any of that stuff stood out to you in that testimony. So here it says dangerous symptoms of psychosis. Postpartum psychosis symptoms include experiencing hallucinations of things or sounds that aren't there, becoming delusional with paranoid, suspicious, or irrational beliefs, exhibiting extremely agitated or even violent behavior, becoming easily confused or disoriented, obsessing over the baby, being extraordinarily fearful or anxious, displaying bizarre behaviors that are uncharacteristic of the individual, extreme and rapid mood swings, refusing to eat or sleep, taking self-harming actions, suicidal thoughts, suicidal attempts, and thoughts of harming or killing her baby. Because postpartum psychosis presents as a major risk of suicide or infanticide, hospitalization is usually required to keep the mother and baby safe. I need to go to break. But on the other side of this break, I really want to talk about some of the issues with post or with depression medications and the truth that not a lot of people have been made aware of or have discussed in the mainstream. So stick with us. And on the other side of the break, we're going to talk more about this tragedy. It's time and this is These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. 
yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Welcome back. So we were just talking about this tragic story of Lindsay Clancy, who murdered her three children in Boston. And I wanted to really dig into some of the things that people may not be aware of when it comes to antidepressants. So there is um, an article that I came across, and I will include all of the links to all of these articles in the show notes. But an article I came across that said, recent reports have revealed that important data about the safety of these drugs, especially their risks for children and adolescents, has been withheld from the medical community and the public. This paper comes on the heels of disturbing charges about conflicts of interest in reports on antidepressant trials. Last September, a study published in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology revealed that a third of meta-analysis of antidepressant studies were written by pharma employees, and that these were 22 times less likely than other meta-studies to include negative statements about the drug. That same month, another research group reported that after reanalyzing the data from a study, a 2001 clinical trial of Paxil funded by GlaxoSmithKline, they uncovered exaggerated efficacy and undisclosed harm to adolescents. Because of the selective reporting of negative outcomes in journal articles, the researchers in the most recent British medical journal study turned to clinical trial reports, which include more detailed information about the trials. They discovered that some of the most useful information was an individual patient listings buried in the appendices. For example, they uncovered suicide attempts that were passed off as emotional liability or worsening depression in the report itself. This information, however, was only available for 32 out of the 70 trials. We find that a lot of the appendices were often only available upon request to the authorities, and the authorities had never requested them. Um, This was from Taryn Sharma, a PhD student at Cochrane and lead author of the study. She said, I'm actually kind of scared about how bad the actual situation would be if we had the complete data. This is something that has become completely apparent, right? During COVID, we really have been slapped in the face and and we have been forced to wake up to the reality that big pharma has controlled clinical studies to a disgusting degree where they are manipulating data to support the efficacy of drugs that have no benefit and actually cause more harm. They hide the data, they manipulate the statistics, and then they use marketing and they use the power of media to tell a story so that we will in turn go around, go out and buy the drugs. So if anybody has had a chance to see Dope Sick, it's an excellent documentary that goes over what happened with the opioid crisis and how the pharmaceutical industry was able to manipulate physicians to overprescribe these drugs. It's such a sick, sick world we live in when pharmaceutical industries are able to control and manipulate the healthcare system 
all for profit. And that's my fear right now with this situation with Lindsay is that she was given multiple different prescriptions for antidepressants and none of them were working. And she was really gaslit. If you keep telling someone you're fine, you're okay. You don't feel what you think you feel. Then at some point, wouldn't you start to feel hopeless and helpless? At some point, you start to go along to get along. You start to smile and wave and do all the things that you're supposed to do in the hopes that, you know, you, you know, they always say fake it till you make it. And so you do all those things, hoping that eventually something will stick, something will happen, something will change. And when it doesn't change, what do you do? There's another study that I came across and it said, um, Big Pharma is party to mask scale depression, chemical imbalance deception. The work of University College London scientists found that the world may have been duped for decades into believing that a chemical imbalance, specifically serotonin, causes depression. In a simple yet elegant review of highly cited research, Benjamin Ang and colleagues have shown how a theory was posited and then converted into fact in the minds of the public and the medical profession through clever marketing. I um, came across this just, I thought it was recent, but I think it was within the last couple of years. And I thought that maybe this had become more mainstream than it has. So a lot of people are still unaware, as was I, that the whole serotonin um, or lack thereof was only a theory. We were, we were made to believe that this was fact. I came across a quote from Dr. Vinay Prasad when I was watching one of his videos, and uh, it was so true. He said, basic science has a crisis of reproducibility. They can't reproduce anything they're claiming. False discovery all the time. And it's really almost a rock bottom field. It's a wonder they're even able to stumble upon the right answer once. So I was watching another video uh, with Dr. Sunil Dand, and he had a few more details about the case that I wasn't aware of. But he said that after she was arrested, her attorney said that medications trapped her in a living hell. A fund was set up and has raised a stunning amount of money. I mean, at this point, I think she's almost to a million dollars so far, which was raised for her defense. It may seem very unusual that funds were being raised for defense in a case like this. So there's a mo there's more to the story. And he goes on to talk about how a lot of her coworkers actually wrote letters in her defense, um, talking about her character and how she was truly um, a very sweet and kind-hearted nurse. And that what happened, they truly believe, was related to the medications and not related to her just being some psychotic person who didn't care about her children. So come to find out she was being medicated with 12 different medications for postpartum psychosis, 12 that were prescribed in the space of a few weeks, which seems rather excessive, of course. And, and so even let's see her, her husband said, and this is her family, her husband, her family, they don't even want her prosecuted. And imagine of all people, of all people, her husband actually went to the doctor the week before to ask for help and said, you're turning her into a zombie. 
it was just a brutal existence that they were living. Like her parents were aware of this. That's why even her mom said it was good to see that she was doing better. So you can tell that this family had been struggling with her, her emotional struggles. She was not in a good place and they continued to overly medicate her in an effort to help her, which I mean, that's what we're taught, right? You, I guess, prescribe a drug for every single symptom. And it's easy to just send someone home with a prescription than to actually sit down and try to deal with the the mental struggles that are going on. And, and in a healthcare system where we're lacking the time and we are lacking the staff and the resources, it's understandable how people can be overlooked, but it doesn't make it right. And so now here we are dealing with this tragedy of three children who are now dead, a husband who has lost everything and a woman now who is paralyzed. She is going to be in a mental and physical prison for the rest of her life, a life that she didn't even expect to continue to have. Right. I mean, she slit her wrists and her throat and then jumped from the second story of her bedroom window and survived. And, and the question I have is, did she survive so that we could have this light, this glaring light shining down to see the inadequacies of our healthcare system? It's so easy to blame her and to say that she was this evil woman. And if more details come out that can point to the fact that, you know, it turns out that she was actually, you know, psychotic and, you know, some kind of crazy murderer, Jeffrey Dahmer type person, then I will stand corrected. But at this point, based on what I know currently, it doesn't seem that we have all of the details. We don't have enough evidence to commit her to that category. I'm leaning more toward this woman was inadequate, inadequately treated for postpartum psychosis and the medications that she was taking led her to this cliff that she attempted to jump off of and was successful. I mean, she unfortunately was able to successfully kill three of her children. Oh, the thought of that is just horrendous. There's another article that I came across called The Efficacy and Effectiveness of Antidepressants, Current Status of Research. And I wanted to just kind of talk about the fact that in the abstract, just a little background, it says, this paper examines the current status of research on the efficacy and effectiveness of antidepressants. The paper reviews four meta-analyses of efficacy trials submitted to America's Food and Drug Administration and analyzes STARD, the sequence treatment alternatives to relieve depression. The largest antidepressant effectiveness trial ever conducted. And the results? Meta-analysis of FDA trials suggests that antidepressants are only marginally efficacious compared to placebos and document profound publication bias that inflates their apparent efficacy. These meta-analyses also document a second form of bias in which researchers fail to report the negative results for the pre-specified primary outcome measure submitted to the FDA, while highlighting in published studies positive results from a secondary 
or even a new measure as though it was their primary measure of interest. The start analysis found that the effectiveness of antidepressant therapies was probably even lower than the modest one reported by the study authors with an apparent progressively increasing dropout rate across each study phase. The conclusion was that the reviewed findings argue for a reprisal of the current recommended standard of care of depression. So how did this happen? How did this come about? So what I found out was back in the 1960s, the chemical imbalance theory was postulated. It was posited. It was just a theory. By the 80s, this theory of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors were marketed globally. The idea that depression was a result of a serotonin imbalance became embedded as fact rather than theory in the psyche of the public due to direct marketing to the medical profession and public by pharmaceutical companies. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. So um, since the 90s, the pharmaceutical industry has capitalized on this with patient information leaflets and direct-to-consumer advertising perpetuating the theory for which there has been no apparent proof. Um, There's an example of a Pfizer's Zoloft direct-to-consumer advertising campaign, which stated that while the cause is not known, depression may be related to an imbalance of natural chemicals between nerve cells in the brain, and that prescription Zoloft works to correct this imbalance. A subtle conversion of a theoretical possibility into a fact that can be treated with a tablet. So what happened? They told us that a theory was backed by the science. We believed them and we went forward with, I mean, that's what we were taught in nursing school. That's what doctors are being taught in medical school. That's what pharmacists are being taught in pharmaceutical school. That's what you the general public are being taught whenever you watch a commercial on TV. If you Google it, if you look it up online, what do you do with postpartum depression or depression period? All you see are a bunch of pharmaceutical produced marketing material. And that to me is completely and utterly disgusting. So the claims about serotonin that are made in some of these papers reflect marketing techniques to maximize the profile of the serotonin theory, according to this article. And it's, it's disgusting. And we know it's true because we've seen it happen over and over and over again. So then my question is, who else should be on trial for the murder of these three children? If it comes down to the fact that this woman was truly suffering from postpartum psychosis and she was inadequately or improperly treated, or she was having a side effect from the drugs that she was on, will pharmaceutical industry, will they be held accountable? Are we going to ignore the facts of the case? The facts and the reality is that most people do not have or don't experience a benefit, a significant benefit when they take antidepressants. According to the research, there is not a significant difference between placebos and the actual antidepressant drug. So this woman is currently going to be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life, however long that is, and confined to a mental prison where she will be tortured for the rest of her life. 
because she was not treated appropriately for her psychosis. The family is broken. Her friends, her colleagues, everyone who's had an opportunity to to experience anything like this in the past with postpartum depression, most of us will never experience the psychosis part. But if you go into the comment section on some of these videos, you will see that a lot of people have come to her defense because they understand or they've experienced it for themselves. It is such a scary place to be. And I really, really hope that people have grace and pause and take the time to actually consider that maybe, just maybe, this woman isn't as evil and did not intentionally kill her children. And maybe we need to go back to the drawing board and we need to figure out how do we properly treat depression? Let's go back into the lab and figure out, are these medications having untoward side effects that have not been addressed because the pharmaceutical industry is a bunch of liars and they do not disclose the important information necessary to give true informed consent. A very telling statement by the authors implicates Big Pharma as being party to these decades-long deception by saying, it is possible that claims about serotonin made in some papers may reflect marketing techniques to maximize the profile of the serotonin theory. The scientific process is something society should be aware of. Scientists make assertions. They argue for and against them. A consensus is created, and sometimes that consensus is built on firm foundations and the claim can stand unchallenged for a long time or indefinitely. In the case of the chemical imbalance theory for depression, claims are now being challenged. Arguments will and should proceed, and we should work towards a new consensus. All of those are quotes that I read to you from the article, Big Pharma, Party to Mass Scale Depression, Chemical Imbalance Deception by Professor Aldous. But truly, it's disgusting to think that we have been, we really got so lazy and we allowed other people to do the work for us, to think for us. And at some point, we are going to have to stop allowing other people to think for us and start to think for ourselves, start to do the research for ourselves. There's so many conflicts of interest that we have to put our foot down and say no more, that we will not trust, but we will verify what is being told to us. And then what we're going to start to need to do is really expand our ability to run through the scientific process. Remember in school, learning about, you know, observation, and then you make a hypothesis, and then you plan out how you're going to test that hypothesis and evaluate whether or not your hypothesis was accurate or inaccurate. And then you have an evaluation of the whole thing and and make a conclusion. When I was, and this was in elementary school, I remember learning the scientific, um, the steps of science. And it was so boring (laughs) trying to Stay within these guidelines. But now that I'm older and I look back on it, I mean, they made it so much more complicated than it needs to be in so many ways. But it is something that we all do on a regular basis. 
We look at a situation, we make an observation, we come up with an idea, and then we have a theory of what it could be, and we test that theory. Why can't we all actively work as scientists and actively start to question the authorities that have led to so much death and destruction? I implore you all to start to dig in deeper start to look at the research, start to look up the terms, become familiar with the medical language if you're not, and really start to become an expert. Depend less on a healthcare system that has proven that it does not always want to do the honorable right thing by our fellow brothers and sisters. It was this do no harm. First, do no harm. That is not the case anymore. So it's going to be up to us to either fix it or let the system crash and burn and start a new one. I'm in the camp of, hey, it's crashing, it's burning. They won't let us fix it. So let's start a new one, a parallel system. Thanks for listening to today's episode. It was a tough one. I know, but It is something that really needs to be discussed because unfortunately our society today believes in trial by uh, social media. So my argument on behalf of Lindsay Clancy is that there's far more to the story than meets the eye. Let's not convict her and say that this was malicious and that she did this on purpose until we find out that she had a boo on the side, that she was having an affair and that she decided that she wanted to get rid of her family so she could start over with a new one. Like unless those details come out, which I seriously doubt they will. And that's only because if she was thinking that way, she probably wouldn't have tried to kill herself. Okay. So my theory is that this was not an attempt of, for her to erase her family and start a new one. This was a true example of what postpartum psychosis looks like. Call it what it is. Call out whoever misdiagnosed her. And let's fix this freaking problem before we lose more children and more mothers and more fathers and more families are destroyed because we refuse to stop walking into these walls that don't move. If it's broken, fix it. So here we are. This is Nurses Out Loud. And our goal here is to shine a light in the darkness. It's time in this world.